The title of the message this morning is How Not to Get Trapped and Destroyed. And we will be in Luke chapter 20, but we're actually not going to go there yet. Uh, I would invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 1. This is almost dead center in your Bibles. If you have the Pew Bible, it's on page 527. Proverbs chapter 1. I want to set the stage a bit for our passage in Luke where the religious leaders seek to trap and destroy Jesus. And then I want us to examine how we are to avoid getting trapped and destroyed. You might be thinking, geez, pastor, this sounds like an intense theme for this joyous celebration of Easter. But trust me on this one, please. I want to submit to you that you've probably been reading Proverbs incorrectly. Proverbs is not a collection of pithy sayings that are to be randomly memorized and then pulled out of your memory bank to impress your friends with the wisdom that you have gained, even if it's God's wisdom. Now, I'm not accusing any of us of specifically doing that, but I think that is the temptation from an incorrect reading of Proverbs. Well, what then is the correct way to read Proverbs? I believe Proverbs is a survival manual in a world that is seeking to trap and destroy you. It is written by Solomon to his son and to the young men of Israel to address two primary traps, two primary ways that they might get destroyed. Money and sexual temptation. It's primarily addressed to young people. So young people gathered here today, I want you to especially listen up, not just the young men, but also the young women. And when I say young, like if you're younger than me, you're young. So like listen up, but we should all listen, right? We should all listen to this, especially young people. You are being and will constantly be bombarded with very intentional messaging from the world telling you that this life is all about you. You are told to get all you can while you can and to enjoy all the pleasures that you want because you deserve it. This is a lie straight from the pit of hell that the wisdom of Proverbs confronts confronts head on. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Solomon says to his son, don't do it. 
Don't go after unjust gain. Don't be greedy for the things of this world because it will kill you. Turn over to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Turn over to chapter 7, verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Do you see the theme here over and over? It will kill you. Money, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of sexual pleasure outside of God's ordained place in marriage, it will cost you your life. Don't mess around, Solomon says to his son. This is life or death things here. And we face the same enemies that Solomon's son and that the young men of Israel faced, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The same temptations Though the tactics today are way more in your face. So the question is how will you not get trapped and destroyed? And the easy answer, the Sunday school answer, is Jesus, right? Jesus is how you will not get trapped and destroyed. But we need to unpack that a little bit more. And I think the deeper answer ties into our passage for this morning. The deeper answer is we need to look to and to learn from Jesus as he is just days away from going to the cross and as the intensity here is ramping up as the religious leaders seek to trap him and to to destroy him. So now you can turn to Luke chapter 20. Again, if you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 879. Before we get into our passage here, I want to make two observations from the context that will help to guide us through this passage. The first one, if you look at chapter 19, verses 47 and 48, this is what we closed with last week. Jesus is teaching daily in the temple, and it says the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Verse 48, they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So we're actually going to see here in chapter 20 and 21, so we're going to look at chapter 20 today, the very end of 20 next week, and a couple weeks on chapter 21. We're going to see these things actually playing out. We're going to see verses 47 and 48 playing out. In in chapter 20, we're going to see, and we see it right in the beginning in verse 1 of chapter 20, that these people who are listed here in 1947 are the ones throughout chapter 20 who are trying to destroy Jesus. So that's what we're going to be looking at today is the, the kind of outflow of 1947. And then the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll look at how the people are all hanging on his words and his teaching in chapter 21. 
So that's the first thing. The second thing is the physical setting in the temple. Now, this is actually hugely important that Jesus is in the temple here. Most of the showdown that's happening here in chapter 20 is related to the temple, and it's related to the question of authority. The question is, are the religious leaders, those who we just saw there in, in 1947 and who we see here in 20 verse 1, are they the true source of authority in the temple or not? Or, as Joel Green puts it, has Jesus reclaimed the temple for its legitimate use as a center of revelatory instructions concerned with the salvific purposes of God? And Green also says that Luke brings into focus a war of worlds, fundamentally different visions of God's purpose, the character of leadership, and the nature of Israel's redemption. Similarly, Daryl Bach says about chapter 20, here is theological warfare in its most dramatic fashion. This chapter is intense, okay? So I started with that picture in Proverbs of how intense that fight is for our lives, right? That is what's happening here as they're coming after Jesus. They're questioning his authority. It is a war of, worlds, of, of the worlds, and it is theological warfare in its most dramatic fashion. So buckle up, here we go. Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 44. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I, will, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, 
so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection." But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? This is the word of the Lord. Well, there is a lot here in chapter 20. Uh, I will be summarizing uh, quite briefly, some of these sections, and each of them really deserves kind of its own deep dive, Um, but we're going to be, over the next nine weeks, we're going to be covering a lot of ground. We're going to be finishing Luke, Uh, so we're going to be finishing five chapters, the last five chapters, maybe a little bit of a faster pace than usual, but I think with Holy Week, and especially the kind of the time we're in, I think it's helpful to take some of these bigger chunks together to kind of, to walk through this in a little bit of a faster time than kind of getting slowed down too much here. So, That's what we're going to do here over the next nine weeks. And this morning here in chapter 20, we're going to look at four things related to Jesus' authority. And I'll list them as we go through, if you're taking notes. Four different things related to Jesus' authority. And then we'll look at four applications for us in relation to what we've seen. So the first thing is that that we're going to see is Jesus' authority questioned. Jesus' authority questioned in verses 1 through 8. We see here the first of three traps that are set for Jesus in chapter 20. He's teaching and he's preaching here. The same people that were told were seeking to destroy him in 1947. And now here they are questioning his authority. They say to him in verse 2, 
tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Now, Jesus perceives the trap here, and he comes back at them with a question of his own about John's baptism. He asks them, was John's baptism from heaven or was John's baptism from man? The beautiful irony here is now that they are the ones who are trapped. They were trying to trap Jesus, and he comes back and he traps them. They know it. They know that they're trapped, and so they kind of get in this huddle, and they have this discussion among themselves. And they basically have two different options. The first is that they can admit John's baptism was from God, and in doing so, they would basically admit that they missed it, right? That they, they didn't get it, they didn't understand what he was saying, and that he was pointing to Jesus, and consequently, they have actually rejected Jesus. So if they say the baptism is from heaven, that's saying that, that they're denying Jesus. The second is to say that John's baptism was from men and get stoned by the people. Humanly speaking, this is a no-brainer, Right? You say that it was from heaven because you don't want to get stoned by the people. Save your neck. But notice how not believing in John, if he was actually sent from God, would eat at their consciences. They knew they were guilty and they couldn't even bring themselves to admit that. So they defer in verse 7. They answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus masterfully gets out of the trap while they remain stuck in it. Next, we're going to see this intense parable that Jesus tells as we see Jesus' authority rejected. Jesus' authority rejected in verses 9 through 18. Now, this section is very fascinating because Jesus tells a very clear parable here. We've, we've mentioned with some of our, our parables, sometimes it's not always obvious what's going on, and we can't always make a clear one-to-one correlation between the characters in the parable and, and people in real life. This one's pretty clear. Each character here in this parable has a very clear one-to-one representation in the exact events that are happening here in Jerusalem during Holy Week. So I think this parable is very interesting, again, because of the the location and and the, the scene that it's happening in here in Holy Week, okay? And then after the parable, this parable is backed up by an Old Testament passage that is quoted several times in the New Testament. So as we walk through this parable, we're going to be identifying each one of the characters and the present day meaning that Jesus is pointing to. He starts off here by talking about a man who planted a vineyard. Very clearly, as you read through the parable, the man who planted the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard, is God. He is the one who planted the vineyard. There's a reference here to Isaiah chapter 5, where Israel is described as the vineyard of the Lord. Here, actually, Israel is not as much the vineyard as, it, as Israel is the tenants in the vineyard. Uh, so that, that's the next set of characters we get to are the tenants in the vineyard. Uh, it's in Israel, especially the religious leaders of Israel. God then sends his servants to collect some fruit from the vineyard. And his servants are the prophets. It's the prophets who he sent to the people throughout Old Testament history. Uh, But they were repeatedly beaten and shamefully treated and sent away empty-handed and wounded and cast out. So after those things happen over and over and over throughout Israel's history, God next, the owner of the vineyard, says, I will send my beloved son, the one presenting this very parable to him, to, to them. And he asked them what the owner of the vineyard the father, what his father will do after they kill the son. 
and he doesn't even give them a chance to answer. He straight up tells them in verse 16. He says, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And we see their reaction here. Their reaction, not just because of the destruction, I think, but because of the vineyard being given to others. They say, surely not. How can this be? Some translations say, God forbid. Their reaction is because not only do they not want to be destroyed, they don't want to see the vineyard being given to others. Now, there's a couple possible meanings of what this could mean when it says that the vineyard is given to others. It could mean that the authority that these religious leaders have is now going to be transferred over to Jesus and the apostles. So it could be that level of talking about authority. But it could also be talking about kind of national Israel being set aside and the Gentiles being brought in. And we especially saw that last week with the cleansing of the temple. I think both of those things can probably be, be true at the same time. So they are not liking what they're hearing here from Jesus. And Jesus doubles down then by looking directly at them and questioning them as he quotes from Psalm 118. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the rejected stone by the builders, rejected in his crucifixion, the one that has become the cornerstone that has been exalted and raised up in his resurrection. And he is what it talks about in verse 18. He is the stumbling stone and the crushing stone. So the message from Jesus here to these religious leaders is very clear. And we're going to see it next week in chapter 21 as he tells the people about the coming destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem and as he warns them of the signs of the times. But sadly, the religious leaders here in the temple, they do not want to submit to Jesus' authority in the religious sphere. So they turn to the political sphere as they seek to trap him again. Our third section here is Jesus' authority misunderstood in verses 19 to 26. Notice why they try to set this next trap. We're told in verses 19 and 20, that they sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They get it. It's so clear, right? Like this, you can't mistake the details of this parable because it's told about them, like, and they get it. So, I mean, you don't have to read very, very far before you're kind of told what the details are, right? It, they know that this parable is talking directly about them, and they want to lay hands on him, but they can't because they fear the people. So then they go on here in, chapter, in verse 20. I feel like this is just some like junior high like fight going on, right? Like they watch him, they send spies, they pretend to be sincere that they might catch him in something that, that he's doing so they can deliver him up to the authorities. They're, like they're, they're afraid and they're just trying to scheme and plot so they can get him in trouble. It just seems so incredibly childish. The trap here that they are trying to set now in this section is pretty straightforward with this question about paying tribute to Caesar. The Jews did not like being under Roman rule. And this tax that they were forced to pay, though it was financially pretty inconsequential, the tax was a constant reminder of, reminder of their subjugation by Rome. So all they want Jesus to do is acknowledge that, to say, don't pay the tax, 
so that he would be rebelling against Rome and then they've got him trapped, right? They're trying to rely now on this political plot to try to get him. Then they can hand him over to Pilate. But on the other hand, if he allows payment to Caesar, it would indicate that he is not really the king that he claims to be. So they think they've got him trapped. They can either get him handed over to the governor or they can see, ha, you're not the king that you claim to be. But again, Jesus masterfully does not fall for their trap. He both affirms that Caesar, who has been put in this position of authority by a sovereign God, Romans 13, has a right to collect taxes to keep public services funded. He affirms that. And he affirms that God is rightfully due what belongs to him, namely our total allegiance and obedience. And notice that once again in verse 26, that they are not able to trap Jesus. He leaves them astonished and silenced. Which brings us then to the last section. This third and final trap where Jesus' authority is misread. Jesus' authority misread in verses 27 to 44. This brings us here to Jesus' showdown with the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. And if you have a hard time remembering, you can just remember that why were they, why were they sad, you see? They were sad because they did not believe in the resurrection. Okay, the Sadducees, bad Sunday school joke. But they were told here that they did not believe in a resurrection, but they believed in the authority of Moses. They believed they got their authority from the five books of Moses from the Pentateuch, and that is who they are looking to. So they try to put, they try to pit Jesus here against Moses. That is the trap. When they call Jesus teacher here, they're assuming that he will have the right answer if he is truly a teacher sent from God. So they have concocted this unbelievable example of a woman who married seven brothers after each, each successive brother died and she married the next brother and he died all the way until they're all dead and the woman's dead. And they're using this teaching of Leverite marriage from Deuteronomy 25, where, which was actually a, a thing commanded in the Old Testament where an unmarried brother had to marry his dead brother's widow in order to continue the family line through childbearing. But again, even though that was in place and that was true, Jesus sees right through their trap and he explains here in verses 34 to 38 that they don't understand the difference between this age, what actually happens in marriage and childbearing and this age, and that age when it comes to marriage and to the resurrection. They are totally missing the point here because in that age to come, there is no need for marriage. There is no need for childbearing because he says we will all be sons of God and we will be sons of the resurrection. There is no more need for human procreation in the, the new heavens and the new earth. And then Jesus points to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3 and he uses their teacher Moses against them by showing that God's claim to be the God, when God appeared to, to Moses at the burning bush, he said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. When, he, when Jesus uses this example, he is saying that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, though, though long dead, right, by the time of Moses at the burning bush, God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not I was. He, he says that they are still alive. As, he, as Jesus says here in verse 38, God is not the God, not God of the dead, but of the living. 
for all live to him. And then in verse 40, they know that they're busted and they no longer dare to ask him any more questions. But Jesus has one more question for them, showing again that they are misreading scripture and that they are not understanding Jesus' rightful authority. Jesus asked them how they can say that the Christ is David's son in verse 41. Then he quotes David from Psalm 110, verse 1, which is a very familiar verse. It's quoted five times in the New Testament. And there's something that's important to point out here uh, that we actually don't see. We don't, we're not able to, to notice this when we read the New Testament. If you look here uh, in the New Testament, whenever this is quoted, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, and the word Lord and Lord there look exactly the same. Uh, but you don't, don't do this right now, but if you, if you flip back to Psalm 110, you can go do this later, look, and you'll see a difference between the Lord said to my Lord. Because in Psalm 110, it's the Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, Yahweh said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So God the Father in Psalm 110 says to the Son, says to the Messiah, the Anointed One, Sit at my right hand as king, as authority, until I make your enemies your footstool. So when Jesus asked them in verse 44, if David calls Adonai, calls the Messiah his Lord, how can he be David's son? What is Jesus getting at here in this question? If the Christ, if the Messiah is simply David's son, just an earthly descendant, then David Israel's greatest king would never call him Lord. David would not have called Solomon Lord. He would not have called any of Solomon's sons Lord. It would be ridiculous for David to call one of his far off earthly descendants Lord if he was simply a human. But David did call him Lord, and he is. David's son is David's Lord. This is a truth that was not properly understood by Jesus' opponents. And Luke actually gives us further clarity on, both, on, on this both later on in Luke and in the early chapters of Acts. In Luke chapter 22, when Jesus is before the council on Friday morning, they ask him, they say, if you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus replied, if I tell you, you will not believe And if I ask you, you will not answer. Notice some of the similarities with the interactions here in chapter 20. And then listen to what Jesus says. He says, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And that's all they needed. Blasphemy, right? You are claiming to be God. He is going back to Psalm 110.1. I'm going, to, I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to sit down at my Father's right hand. And that was all they needed to accuse him. I want us to turn now to Acts chapter 2. Because we're going to see this kind of all tie together as it relates to the resurrection. And then we'll close with some application for us. So Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost, and Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2, beginning in in verse 14, he explains how the prophecies in Joel have been fulfilled on this day, 
Then he addresses the men of Israel beginning in verse 22. And likely some of those who were in the temple with Jesus in Luke chapter 20 are gathered here on the day of Pentecost. And he tells them that they were humanly responsible for crucifying Jesus, even though God delivered him up according to his own definite plan and foreknowledge. So if you want a great example of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility at play, here it is right here. Jesus dying on the cross by their wicked hands and by God's foreordained plan. Then jump down with me to verse 29. I'm going to read from 29 to 36. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This claim that Jesus makes in Luke chapter 20 comes to very clear fruition here as Peter confronts these, the Jews on the day of Pentecost and goes back again and quotes from Psalm 110.1 saying that David called him Lord. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the risen one, the one whom you crucified. David's son is David's God and he rose from the dead to prove it. And again, perhaps some of those who were a part of this Holy Week showdown in Luke chapter 20 are now among those who we see starting in verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Words that never lose their significance. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And this brings us back full circle to the warning from Proverbs and from the questions that we asked at the beginning. How will we not get trapped and destroyed? In other words, how will we save ourselves from this crooked generation? Again, the easy Sunday school answer is Jesus, right? But the whole message of Easter And the point of the resurrection is not only to look back on some past event, as foundational as that is for us, as important as that is to our faith, and we must do that. 
but we, we must live now in the light of the resurrection hope that is ours in Christ. So how do we do that? How do we live now in light of that resurrection hope? Let's flesh that out a little bit. I've got four applications for us that respond, that correspond to the four main points regarding Jesus' authority that we saw in Luke 20. I'm going to take the first two together and the, and the last two together. First two, we must submit to and accept the authority of the risen Christ. We must submit to and accept the authority of the risen Christ, both to who he is as Lord of all and as Lord of our lives. So individually, we do this by loving and worshiping and obeying him as he has revealed himself to us in his word. We need to be students of the scriptures because that is our only reliable source of authority. In the home, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Your recognition of and your obedience to your parents in the home as the designated authority placed over you by God is a recognition and submission to his authority. This is no small thing. Furthermore, Husbands' love for their wives and wives' submission to their husbands are obedience to the Lord and to his authority. In the church, as we particularize and as we ordain our own ruling elders, you as members of the church are under the authority that has been put in place by Christ. Last week we heard our membership vows when we recognized the new members. The fifth vow was, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church, and do you promise to promote its purity and peace? Those aren't empty words if you have taken those vows as a member of our church. Those are vows that you have taken before the Lord, and you submit to Christ and his authority when you submit yourself to the government and the discipline of the church. <clears throat> Finally, in the world... There's been a lot of discussion over this past year about this, especially as, as it has related to government shutdowns and mask mandates. I'm not going to open up that whole can of worms right now, but I'd want to remind us of Peter's words on this subject, especially as the challenges that we face as Christians in this country might only continue to increase. We are told in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Let us honor those in authority over us, even if we don't like it, and let God deal with them by putting them to silence for their ignorant foolishness. And I will say there is a lot of ignorant foolishness going on. And God will deal with that, okay? That's not our job to deal with that. Take the third and fourth ones together then. We must understand and rightly read the authority of the risen Christ. We must understand and rightly read the authority of the risen Christ. 
again, individually and corporately, by being students of the scriptures, by sitting under the word, both in our own personal devotions and study, and then as we gather together for corporate worship. If Living Stone Church is going to have an impact for Christ in the lives of those who walk through these doors and then beyond, then the word of God must be understood, it must be rightly read and sung and prayed and taught and preached. This is a weighty burden. I was sharing with a friend from California recently. Um, He occasionally listens to some of my sermons and gave me some encouraging feedback. And I just was like, thank you, but continue to pray for me. I said, the burden is heavy, right? It's to prepare week in and week out. And just especially in light of everything that has been going on, right, in the last year and having to address things. And it's a heavy burden. So I would ask you the same thing, to pray. Pray for me. Pray for Bill and James and Chris as we prepare to teach and preach God's word. Pray for Chris and Jesse as they prepare to step into the role of ruling elders. And pray for yourselves that you will be faithful in your participation in worship as God's word is magnified here among us. And then pray finally that many who don't yet know the risen Christ would encounter him and that they would submit to his authority and that they would repent and be baptized and that they would save themselves from this crooked generation. He is risen. Let us go forth and serve our risen and reigning king. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the hope of the resurrection. Thank you for Christ who faced opposition, who faced persecution, who faced death for us. Thank you that the worst opposition, the worst persecution that we might face in this life completely pales in comparison to what he did for us. And thank you that he rose from the grave on the third day. Thank you that death has been conquered. Thank you that the grave has been defeated. And that we can live in confidence. We can live victoriously because of Christ. That death has no victory and death has no sting. God, I pray that we would live our lives in that reality, in that resurrection hope, proclaiming to the world around us through our words and our deeds that Jesus reigns, that he is the king on his throne, and that he's coming back. We praise you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.